Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Drolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Humble by Daryl Van Tongeren. Humble, free yourself from the traps of a narcissistic world. Uh, the title was interesting. Looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is The Undiscovered Self by Carl Jung. The Undiscovered Self, The Dilemma of the Individual in Modern Society. And so any of you familiar with psychology or famous figures in psychology, psychiatry, will be familiar with Carl Jung, one of the big powerhouses in the field, a contemporary of Freud's. Uh, and they had a, they knew each other, had a relationship together, but at times disagreed on some fundamental um, issues. And so in this book, it was actually one of his later books by Carl Jung, written in the late 50s, I think 1957 or 58. And so if we look at the historical context of the book, it's uh, a little more than a decade after World War II had ended. Um, and also during the Cold War. And so those themes come up in this book, looking at dictators and um, also atomic war or atomic bombs and, and what can happen, annihilation of the human race, that possibility. So that, that was there, of course, it hasn't disappeared, but it was closer to World War II and um, a nuclear bomb had, two of them had been detonated by the United States. So we saw firsthand what that impact can be and, and let us know the fate of the world was in a precarious place. And so uh, he talks about in this book, there's some themes that I really have enjoyed and find value from Jung related to things like the shadow and how every human being has good and bad sides or the potential for good and bad or good and evil, even if you don't think of it in a religious sense that we all have these capacities. However, we often like to disown parts of ourselves, and we might, let's say, disown our shadow, or let's say an evil part of us, or a part that can do evil, and we project that or put that on to others. And so um, I've heard or read him about him discussing this theme in the book. He even shares how we can see this, for example, with wars between the West and the communists, where there was the, we are all good and they are all bad, a splitting of sorts. So we're taking the bad part of ourself and projecting it, putting it onto our enemy, that they are all bad. And so what actually we would benefit from then and now is to acknowledge, accept, and understand our own darker side and recognize that it's not just something that exists out there but it's something that we all have within us. And when we embrace it, encounter it, we actually become a more full human being, have more of a dynamic personality and ability to interact with the world. Related to this, Jung has a powerful and very succinct and beautiful quote 
Uh, maybe you've seen it. No tree, it is said, can grow to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell. No tree, it is said, can grow to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell. And so to me, it's that you can't achieve your greatest good as a human being or human experiences um, unless you're in touch with and also connected to those deeper, darker parts as well. For example, to tell the truth is obviously good, but if you're not aware of your capacity to lie or even that ability to lie, it's not going to be as powerful of a truth or kindness or whatever it is that we're discussing without this awareness and connection to um, the different parts of ourselves, we actually can't be as good or be the best version of ourselves. And as a therapist, this is something I encounter often where we are trying to get in touch with ourselves, try to get in touch with things that we might not be aware of, feelings, experiences, um, you know, relationships from our past that are impacting us and continue to impact us. And also aspects of ourself. And something I f we feel from clients at times is different types of resistance, but one type can be a fear, anxiety about going into our own unconscious and seeing what's there. What if something really dark is there, something really bad? What if I'm actually a bad person? This is something that people often will think. What if I'm a bad person? And so if we go deeper, we see that I'm that way. They might not verbalize it that way. Sometimes they might, but you can feel that or that fear will will pop up for them. And so actually, I feel like these principles that Jung has put forward, when we read them and understand them, it helps us become less afraid when we recognize we will see some dark things because we all have dark parts to us. And that's okay. That makes you human. It doesn't make you bad. And just because you have that potential for bad doesn't mean you will act on it or have acted on it or will in the future have to be afraid that if you encounter it, you'll act on it. It's just part of you. That potential is there. So there's nothing to be afraid of. Also, in, in uh, people coming to therapy, often a feeling is, okay, I have to just get rid of this part of myself. You know, I notice I have this insecure part. And if I just get rid of that, I'm going to be good. Or I have this anger. And if we get rid of it, I know I'll you know have good relationships or I'll be good at this or that. And what we usually have to uh, let our clients know is it's not about actually excising and removing these parts of yourself. It's going to be about integrating those parts into your full human experience. So you have something with anger that's making you push it away or have, having these outbursts, but we're never going to remove anger. The healthy individual isn't one that doesn't have the experience of anger. That person will actually be missing. It's like missing a limb and thinking you're going to get healthier. You actually need to integrate that in a healthy way into who you are, which is challenging, but is more the path to health. Integration rather than removal or getting rid of these parts. So Jung is a very big um, thinker in this way of putting things forward, of presenting the human experience, the human psyche. And so in this book, uh, he does discuss this sense that if we keep putting this, what we think of as the bad part, the shadow onto others, um, we will will be in trouble. And actually, when we do that, we're more likely to be 
the victims to dictators and different ideologies that might will be extreme because if I think the evil is out there, that I'm looking for someone who's going to tell me they are all good and the evil is out there, the all bad is out there, and I'm going to protect you from them, or together we can attack them. So it actually makes us more susceptible to that. And that's another theme in the book, the individual versus the masses, and that we have to have space for individuals to be their individual selves, not just become part of some mass and to be lost within that. And um, as the title implies, the undiscovered self, there's an encouragement towards self-discovery, self-knowledge. And he discusses how this type of self-knowledge, it's not like science in the way of just we have empirical data or that someone from the outside can give a theory to tell you what a human is. That can give you a theory and an abstraction, which can be important, but to really look at the unique individual, we have to go to that unique individual. We can't stay with the theories. And so it actually reminded me, he talks a bit about this, like being normal, um, maybe not with those words exactly, but in recent books, I've discussed it on the book um, last week regarding periods and other books related to being normal or what that even means, um, that really, even in science, we might come up with these averages but it usually doesn't reflect any individual person. So if we took the averages on, let's say, 20 characteristics of your physique of, of all the, let's say, Americans, you wouldn't find one American that fits that exact average. So the averages can give us some information in an abstract way or has some value, but it doesn't tell you necessarily anything about one individual or any individual. He said... Something like if you have a bunch of rocks and you, you're told the average is 4.5 you know, kilograms for each rock, you might not find one rock that actually weighs exactly that amount. So there is this emphasis on the significance of each individual self and something that can only be expressed or experienced experientially. Each individual's experience is unique to them, and we must be given that space to do that. Um, but also this encouragement of going into the psyche and the unconscious. And, and I felt there was a way that he talked about the unconscious saying that it doesn't have to be all to be dark, even if we talk about the shadow can be part of it. Something that I've um, talked often on the show about, because I do think that when people even hear the word, oh, that's in your unconscious, because of the legacy of Freud, who introduced the concept or one was one of the people that helped make it more known, more popular, and his emphasis on these sexual fantasies and these parts of ourselves that we repress or we can't express, the unconscious got associated with meaning dark and ugly and, you know, embarrassing, shameful parts or things that you have within you, where there are going to be some of these um, feelings, repressed desires, sexual things will be there, but along with a whole bunch of other things. It's not just unconscious, meaning dark is not a good association. It's part of it, but it's much more than that. And so I think, as I was saying, because of that, people are afraid to go into their unconscious. Um, an experience I've often had is if I meet someone or if I'm in a group of people and someone asks what I do, and when you say you're a psychologist, one of the common responses people say is like, oh, you're analyzing me. You must be analyzing me. And, you know, I, I sometimes will joke with the person or say something saying, yes, I am, or I already figured you out or something. But 
really what I recognize when someone says that is that they are afraid of what I'm going to see or what someone sees when we, if we were to analyze them or to go deeper. So again, this sense that the things within me are dark and bad and shouldn't be seen or I shouldn't let anyone see them. So now that I think that you might be able to perceive them because of your your profession and sometimes they might just assume you can see everything or that you can read people in a certain way, they get anxious. So I think it's unfortunate, but there are these ways, one, because of how the unconscious is seen in this way of being associated as dark. And then two, because we have internalized shame from our childhood and going forward that makes us think there's parts of us that are bad, we feel a fear of being seen. And so like many things, we both desire and really want to be seen. There's a sense of people saying, oh, I felt seen by this person, or I didn't feel seen and that didn't feel good. So we want to be seen, but it's also very scary because when you're seen, you are then fully exposed and that person could fully reject or accept you. And that can be very scary as well. So we have this fear and desire to be seen, um, but also, as I was saying, yeah, the fear is there as well. So um, encouraging self-knowledge, there's a whole chapter titled that in the book and what that means. Um, I thought it was going to get even, you know, I know he's written many volumes, many different books. So what exactly that would look like, he did share things about psychology or psychiatry at different parts and that they might value this type of experience of going deeper and trying to understand yourself better. Um, there's a few things that also stood out to me. There's a part where he talked about, you know, human beings now interacting with one another more from different regions, different areas, um, and, you know, looking at the human experience and how people might see individuals as so different. But there's a quote here where he says, despite all the differences, the unity of mankind will assert itself irresistibly. I thought that was interesting. And later in that same chapter, he actually talked about the burden of whites as far as what they have done. Um, so he's talking about uh, colonization. And he says, in this respect, the white man carries a very heavy burden indeed. And so, you know, we hear about colonialism. Um, of course, we've heard about it for a long time, but I've heard it uh, stated even more frequently now. But I didn't know that he had written about it in this way. And so he is known and rightfully so as a very um, powerful and insightful observer of the human experience, human history, culture. And so reading this book, I did uh, get to see some of that, especially how much of what he wrote about this 55 plus years ago was very relevant today. And so I'd read some of his work before. I always think if we really want to understand a thinker, we want to read their books, at least some of them in entirety, because I'm sure many of you have read his quotes as I have, um, but reading some of his work more closely uh, was an enjoyable experience for me, one of the greater minds in the field of psychology, or if you can say philosophy, uh, really a book I greatly enjoyed. And I'm glad I read. I definitely will read some more of his books soon. The Undiscovered Self by Carl Jung, The Dilemma of the Individual in Modern Society. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to continue on some of, um, well, first a Jung quote, but related to this theme of discovering yourself. The book was The Undiscovered Self. And a quote of his that I, I really like because I think it's so fitting and relates to really every 
one of us, um, but it's this one. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And so when we look at our own lives, and actually sometimes it helps if someone is looking at it with us, we will notice themes that maybe seemed to us or we thought were just luck or by accident, but upon a closer reflection and understanding of ourselves, we might see the role that we played in this unconsciously, as the quote even would imply, but we have played some role in it. So, for example, a, a common um, theme related to this would be every person I date ends up being this way. What's my luck? I keep dating, dating jerks or people who are have a, a you know a drinking problem or people who want to use me or people, whatever it is. We sometimes will feel that we've gotten bad luck. Can you believe it? The last four people I've met, the last six people I've met have all been this way. So, But if we look at this quote, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. So it feels like fate, like look at my luck. But often when we look a little bit deeper, we see that you may be attracted to and attracting certain types of people that are related to what you've experienced in your own life. So it isn't just luck or fate. It is something about you that's also playing a big part here. Now, I will add, I do think luck is real and luck exists. I don't mean that people are lucky or we should think of someone as having good luck or good luck charms or that, um, you know, the superstitious type of luck, but that there are things that are out of your control that will impact your life when you, you know, things you, you know, doing in your life, meeting people, experiences you have, things are out of our control. Some things are out of our control. So that is true that there is some luck. So I'm not saying if anything has ever happened to you is 100% your fault. Um, but to think that it was 0% your involvement, that's also a problem. So that's one. There is luck in the world for sure. Not that I'm saying we can do something to change the luck, but that we will experience things in our life that are out of our control. And that's something that we have to just accept that we can't control it. Now, on the other hand, when I'm saying there's things that are in your control or if you've impacted, let's say, this series of bad relationships you've been in, what also comes up is this sense of blame. So that's why we want to say it's luck, because we don't want to be blamed for what has happened. It doesn't feel right. And to me, the focus on blame almost always leads us to a bad place and doesn't lead to a good ending, whether it's with ourselves and things we've done or in any kind of relationship. So with family relationship, couples, friends, whatever it might be. When we get into the blame game in an argument, it almost always will end in a bad place because let's say you win, meaning that the other person was wrong and you blame them. Um, what do you get from that? Well, maybe you'll get some sense of vindication, but you're going to feel very distant from your partner who now will feel bad and feels further away from you. So we don't win when we make it a blame game. So the focus can be understanding and contribution, those I think can have value. Understanding what happened and recognizing we both have contributed to getting there, but blame doesn't help us. So if we help remove some of that sting of the blame, the guilt that comes with understanding what's happened, we can do far better at really assessing the situation. 
So when we, you know, this comes up, let's say whether it's someone talking about a series of exes that they've had or they are, you know, in a relationship with someone or marry someone with certain characteristics and we see some potential connection to their own, let's say, childhood. One of the common refrains is, well, yeah, okay, it turns out this person is controlling or it turns out they're a rageaholic or whatever that you're saying might be related to my past, but I didn't know that. When I first met them, they were so nice or they were so calm or whatever it is. They didn't show any of these signs. It wasn't that they showed up and I could know that they were this way. So it couldn't have been that I was attracted to them because of that. And so this is where the unconscious part comes in. Um, as much as when we think about our attraction, we try to verbalize it. That's that's what we do, right? So what did you like about him? What do you like about them? What do you like about her? And the person will say, oh, you know, I liked their eyes and I liked the way they said this or their personality or they were funny. And it's not to say that those things aren't real reasons that we are attracted to the person, but there also tends to be a host of factors we're not aware of. So much remains unconscious to us and out of our awareness. So it's like, yeah, you felt good around this person and you can't say exactly why. I did like the way they smiled and the way they talked and other things. You maybe can get a sense of some of it, but some of it we don't really feel. And one of the things people often say, and you likely had this experience, is, you know, the person felt really familiar, like we just clicked. And so you can click because there's some sense of chemistry or alignment and values and ways of expressing yourself and variety of things that might make you click. But you also might feel that sense of I already knew you because they're reminding you of your past in some way unconsciously. So this is the 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 thing we have to be mindful of is that we are feeling comfortable with them because they feel like home because something about them is reminding us of home. And so this is why when you meet someone, if you have this feeling, I know you already, it doesn't mean it has to be bad, but we do want to be aware of, well, where is that coming from? It doesn't just mean you're good for each other. It could actually mean you're quite bad for each other. And especially if you've had a difficult childhood in the sense that, of course, everyone's childhood has pain in it, but one where there was significant damage in the relationships between you and your parents and between them, what unfortunately happens is your radar is going to be off, meaning that the things that you're drawn towards are things that are unhealthy for you. And the things that make you think this feels really good, it feels familiar, will unfortunately tend to be the type of people that are not going to be good for you. So um, what often I think people mistake is that when we think of love, especially from our understanding of love or what we think we understand from our uh, movies and songs and poems about love and romantic love and what it's supposed to feel like, I actually think often those types of expressions express an unhealthy love, especially when that love is experienced, as we might say, at first sight or so initially. But we take that as the ideal, what we're supposed to strive towards. You know, often in art, something can be condensed let's say in a movie rather than allowing you to see them fall in love in you know over several months and years they show it within a moment and that makes it more intense more powerful more dramatic but it's actually also more unrealistic 
And if we genuinely have that experience or we think we're having that experience, it generally means it's something not good. But we think this is the ideal. I found what everyone is looking for, the person who made me head over heels within an instant. And that can feel good. We can get that good feeling. It's someone familiar, someone that's triggering some of these wounds and good feelings and a bunch of things. They stir you up. They make you feel a lot of things. But what I've experienced working with many people is that the better loves are the ones that burn slower in the sense of how the attraction builds. There's something there. It's not to say you're not going to like the person. Of course, you need that. But the head over heels feeling tends to be more unhealthy than healthy. So although we think that's what we're supposed to be looking for and that's what love is all about, it tends to actually drive us in the wrong direction. The radar is pulling us towards something that's actually unhealthy, something that is trying to resolve old wounds. And what that means is you're going towards someone that is similar to the people that caused those wounds, which sadly, although we're hoping it's going to be different this time and they're going to heal them, they end up hurting us in a similar way. So the individual who had uh, an alcoholic father is more likely to be drawn to someone who has issues, addiction type of issues. And on the first date, the person maybe didn't even drink at all or drink in a very controlled way. But it's something in them that feels comfortable, feels familiar. You can't quite put your finger on it. And so this is where the unconscious shows its value, but also how it can get us in trouble in the sense that it can be aware of things or have a sense of things that we can't consciously know. So you might say, I feel drawn to this person, but I don't know why. And if we dig a little deeper, we might find it. This is about making the conscious, the unconscious conscious, as the quote says, and as the book titled, The Undiscovered Self implies, we might be able to uncover it. But if we don't dig deeper, have these experiences of reflection, often with the help of someone else, to uncover what is there, we won't recognize it. So we are all living much more on autopilot than we like to realize. We all like to think that the reason why I did this, I know why I did this, exactly why I can tell you. And often we are, but in a lot of things we don't know, or at least we don't know a lot of what is drawing us to something. Why do you like this song? Well, because the melody is like this, and it does this, and it does that. That might be true, but often it's actually more than that, and you might not be aware of what else is making you like the song or enjoy the song. So just like we use so many things in life that we don't know how they work. I use my phone today. I know how to work my phone, but I don't know how it works as far as the inner workings of the technology. Our brains are, are a similar thing that we use them, we experience them, and really even separating the brain from the body is its own thing, but let's just do that for the sake of discussion. But my brain, I use it every day and I experience it, but it doesn't mean I know exactly how it works and I know everything that's going on inside of it. It's much more complicated than that. It's much more complex. And even the undiscovered self, we're trying to make things conscious. It's not that you can achieve, um, you know, this state where you have nothing unconscious left. That's not possible, but you can have a better understanding of yourself and what drives you, what makes you do certain things, what pulls you in certain ways. And you might even question yourself a little bit more. When I work with clients who let's say, have this series of being attracted to the wrong types of people that keep hurting them. 
And once we get past not blaming them, but recognizing there might be something they're contributing, what they actually, what I actually encourage them to do is if they're dating someone, of course, not to date someone they're not attracted to, but if they find themselves attracted to someone, trying to really check if there's anything there that makes them think they could be like someone from their past, let's say their parents, if that's where the trauma or the pain lies, can this person be like them? And what's so hard is that each time we're in a situation and we have a feeling, it feels real. That's how feelings are. They have to feel real for us to even experience them. So you can know this. Oh, you know, I tend to be attracted to people who are emotionally unavailable. I know that about myself. But now they're on a date and they just find themselves liking the person. And you might even remind them of this fact, but they say, no, no, it just feels right. It feels good. I know I I tend to do that, but this actually feels really nice. It's not like that. And so they unfortunately might still put themselves in that situation again. It takes a lot of work to unlearn some of these things and to actually question it. And it could seem strange to say that when we're looking at who you're attracted to, to question yourself or to, to not just go with it, it's a lot easier to do that. But if we want to take advantage of our understanding of ourselves or to utilize that in a better way, we have to do the work to uncover what's there in our unconscious or try to understand it better and then try to challenge the things that autom- automatically come up for us. Because if we don't, as the, the quote by Jung implies, we'll find ourselves in a lot of trouble. You might think it's just fate, but until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. wanted to conclude with some more thoughts from Jung and some thoughts on those thoughts. So a few more quotes. Um, one is, knowing your own darkness is the best method for dealing with the darkness of other people. And another one, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. That one is a, I think a tough <laughs> pill to swallow because when someone annoys us, we think, ah, oh, like, look how annoying they are in me. We like that feeling usually as much as we're annoyed of looking down on someone else. It does make us feel good. So as he says here, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. And so in this this quote, it doesn't say exactly how, uh, and I'm reading, I'm sure it's an excerpt of something else. But when we're irritated by someone, as I said, we tend to think it's something about them that's bad, right? So look how... You, know, you see what they were doing, or she said this, or he said that, or they did something, and or I hate people that are this way. You know, we all probably said something. Oh, it's really a pet peeve of mine, and so we tend to think of it. Let's say, oh, my, a pet peeve of mine is people who are cheap. A pet peeve of mine is people who lie, or whatever it is, and so it really bothers us. And of course, something like that lying is um, is a bad thing. But if it's irking us so much or it's coming to your attention, something, yeah, cheapness or people who are loud or people who are this, whatever it might be, it is probably going to tell you something about yourself. More often than not, it's something within yourself that you don't like that you're seeing in other people. And because again, as we talked about the shadow, it's better, it's easier for us to think of the darkness out there. It's easier for us to look at this bad thing is happening in these other people and not in ourselves. So 
I don't like this thing in them. And it even makes us feel that it shows how much I'm not like that. You know, so sometimes you'll meet someone, they say, you know, I hate people who lie. I hate people who lie. And they, it kind of feels like out of place. Like we're not even talking about that in any way. And somehow they're bringing that up. And often it can mean that they are someone who has a, a relationship with dishonesty. Now, it doesn't mean they have to be a liar themselves, but they might be. And that's why they're so focused on that. Or everyone is a cheat. Everyone's out there cheating. Well, what does that mean about them and what they're thinking about? So as hard as it is to do that when we're annoyed by something in someone else, the calming feelings like, oh, look at them. I'm so not like that. Even sometimes people say, you know, I saw these people. They were so cheap. You know me? No, I am the kind of person that I'm going to buy whatever you want. I won't even mention it again. I won't even tell you that I, you, you know, I'll forget it myself. And so this emphasis of showing that they're so not something, uh, there's that Shakespeare um, line of thou doth protesteth too much, that if you're protesting so much against something, saying you're so not something, it, it's saying something is up there, something's going on. So tracing that back to ourselves can be, as I was saying, difficult because it's much easier to put it on someone else and leave it there. But if we're being genuine with ourselves, we want to recognize that there's probably something going on there. Why am I being so irritated by this? And so I wanted to relate this to a uh, a topic that we you know see a lot based, especially since Twitter, social media, which is cancel culture and this idea of canceling someone um, of, you know, because of something they said, something they did, canceling uh, a celebrity, a writer, whoever it might be. So first, to to balance things out, there's definitely something good about the fact that people are being called out more for saying things that are sexist, racist, uh, homophobic, and a host of other things. So I think, unfortunately, as is often the case, and it relates even to the sense of splitting and making something all good, all bad, we try to make things either all good and all bad. Is cancel culture good or bad? And so as a culture of just canceling people and taking out dialogue, I think that's bad. But it doesn't mean that at times when someone has quote unquote gotten canceled, that was a bad thing. Because sometimes what's happening is someone is doing something bad and there's consequences. So if someone is put in jail for committing a crime, we wouldn't say they got canceled. You'd say, okay, well, they broke some law and now are paying some price and having a consequence for breaking that law. So sometimes people have done things, said certain things that are bad and would reflect that they might not be fit for a certain position. And so a consequence makes sense. So it's not just that if someone got canceled in your eyes, it was unfair because that's cancel culture. Can it go too far? Absolutely. And that's something that I'll be talking about next. So I, I think this is good that we're having more awareness of the language that's used, things that people say, not letting things slide uh, as they often have. Casual racism, sexism, these things have a, a big impact. They permeate the culture and they continue to perpetuate unhealthy dynamics. So I'm, I'm happy about that. What I do see as the the negative side or when cancel culture goes too far, to me is actually very related to this theme of projecting the darkness outside, that I have no shadow or darkness, it's all out there, and I'm going to find the individuals to place it on. I think that's actually a big part of what goes on with 
um, cancel culture. So as human beings, as individuals in a society, all of us carry with us some thoughts, beliefs, stereotypes, prejudices about different groups of people. It's impossible for us not to get impacted by what is around us in popular culture, in the media, and then also in our own families and then our own experiences. It will impact us. And so I think because of that, because we all have some um, biases, some uh, beliefs about people that we then think we probably shouldn't have because I shouldn't be in any way racist, sexist, or any of those things, because I carry with me this sense that I shouldn't feel these things, and maybe it's even in some way unconscious or barely conscious, it's easier for me to then put that onto other people. Look at these racist, bad people out there. Look how racist they are. So someone says something that maybe is not as sensitive or could be construed as racist, and we see a lot of people attacking that person, saying we should cancel them, we should have them lose their job, we should threaten them, do a whole bunch of things. And I think when it becomes an overreaction, this tends to be because we're projecting our own parts that might be racist, sexist, whatever it might be that we harbor and put them on to this individual. Actually, in this book, um, Jung talked about things like perfectionism or thinking we're perfect or idealizing ourselves or something and how uh, negative that is, how harmful that is. And I think that's very true. We want to think of ourselves as this benevolent, pure, I don't have one ounce of any thought or ideas ever crossed my mind that could in any way be insensitive to any group. And so because I have to disown and get rid of these parts of myself, these darker parts of myself, I'm going to put them onto other people. So-and-so is a racist. And in a way, we're almost saying, I know they're racist based on something they said. In a way, really, we're saying, I know I'm racist. I know I have something within me. And so I'm putting it on them. And again, I must emphasize that when we say these things, it doesn't mean always it's because of this. Sometimes people say things that are racist and they should face consequences and we need to call them out. So it's not going to be black and white to always say it's always racist. It's not racist ever. Of course, that can't be true. Uh, I'm saying when I can get the sense of people going too far by calling someone out uh, and expecting consequences for something that maybe was a, a misunderstanding. Because I think what unfortunately happens is when we create this type of toxicity where it's like as soon as you say something that isn't the expected accepted way of talking about something you should be ostracized from society that is really harmful to having comfortable relationships comfortable dialogues uh, even learning so if something is the let's say a more sensitive way of saying something if we attack anyone who doesn't know that word yet we don't even let that way of learning happen or the process of learning happen so that people recognize, okay, maybe I can learn about this. We are just attacking. And so I feel that sometimes we see this, that the intention, this is something that I always try to stress that actions of course matter, but really we have to look deeper at the why, why am I doing this? So someone says something I think is sexist or racist. Why am I responding the way that I do? And so if my intention is protecting those who are oppressed. So this person is saying something homophobic. I want to defend and be an ally for the LGBTQ community. And that's my intention. And that's what I'm trying to do. Um, or I think there should be consequences because that's not okay what they said. 
that can be okay if we look at depending on what's going on. But if I'm doing it to show how good I am, look at how not homophobic, not racist I am, I'm calling out this person. Look how mad I am about it. And sometimes we, you know, people talk about the outrage um, that people express. One aspect of that is if I show I'm so angered by something, that's way, my way of signaling or indicating that I'm so not that way. So someone said something a little bit racist, but you know how mad that ma- made me? Look how mad I am. And so by that, it shows you uh, how not racist I am, how not that I am, which again, if it's so over the top, it would make us wonder, is there something within ourselves we're trying to disown or get rid of? We do see, you know, these dramatic histrionic reactions as a way of displaying such a strong feeling. Even, for example, in Persian culture, someone dies and people are hitting themselves, right, to show I'm so hurt. This is, I want you to know I'm sad about this. And so some of, in my estimation, what I see in these experiences of people is that there is a way of trying to show I'm so sad I have to indicate to you how sad I am. It's not just an expression of something. It's a signal to you of how I'm feeling because I have to make sure you know how much I care, how much I feel about this. So similarly, people will um, express a, a level of moral outrage, which again can be justified at times an indignation that something is not fair to certain people is is hurting people, uh, will continue to hurt people. But when we see it going too far, it usually is because I want to make sure you see me as a certain way and that I'm not seeing it that way. It's kind of interesting. My voice sometimes makes it just to the end of the the show and it's a little bit sore. You might have heard it going out right there. Um, So there's a way that I'm trying to, I think my, my throat's trying to cancel me. And, and not let me say anymore. But so there's a way that our um, reaction shows something within ourselves. So, you know, that quote from Jung about something that irritates you um, can lead you to an understanding of ourselves. You know, it could be in a variety of ways. As I said, something that people are doing that you keep noticing, right? So what you notice, there's usually an infinite amount of information out there, but the things that you notice are telling you something about yourself. So as I said, as painful as it can be, as uncomfortable as it can be to recognize that when you see someone doing something and you don't like it, you want to reflect a bit to see, is it anything about me that's being triggered in this? Am I someone who maybe does that or thinks about that? Or sometimes it's something I wish I could do. And since I'm not doing it, I want to show that I'm a good person for not doing it. Um, I've talked about this before, and since it's just like a minute or two left, but to me, this is the the psychology of Karens, so you've probably heard that term before, Karen, usually being applied to a white woman who is calling out usually people who are not white for doing something, calling the police, um, videotaping them, doing something, causing trouble. Often the person who is a Karen, the one who is um, so abiding by the rules or so quick to punish others for violating or doing something that might violate a rule, I think often what is happening is that someone that is sticking to the rules too closely but doesn't want to actually is doing it for some kind of external approval or because it's the right way or they should get praised or reinforced for that. And so when they see someone doing something that breaks a rule, they feel like there has to be a consequence for that. I'm going to make sure they get it because it feels unfair that when I don't break the rules and I want to, I should get rewarded. They should get punished if 
they ever do break the rules. But really what we're seeing is that they probably want to break some rules themselves. And we see this with a lot of moral things from how people restrict sexuality to a host of other things that it's often because we want to do something ourselves that we call out the people that are actually doing that thing that we wish we were doing. Um, Definitely some more thoughts on this, but we will have to save them for another time because we're getting to the end of today's show. Uh, As always, a big thank you to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.